You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. Coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, my name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always from Southampton, England, is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. And before we get started, um, I just want to say something. That that voice you hear when our show starts is a friend of mine named Alex Friedman, and he is the voice of the Oklahoma City Dodgers AAA baseball team in Oklahoma City. When I wanted to have like a professional sounding intro to this podcast, I approached Alex and said, hey, how much would it cost for me to have you record this intro? And I knew that there was no way because Alex is a good friend and he's just a great guy. I knew that there was no way that Alex was going to take a dime of my money. And of course, he said, no, don't worry about it. I'll just record it. Let me know what you want the script to be. And working in minor league baseball, you know, like a lot of industries, they're going through a really hard time right now. Um, I have a lot of friends. I've worked in baseball for, for years, and I have a lot of friends in minor league baseball, and they're, they're hurting right now. Their entire season got canceled. We really don't know what minor league baseball is going to look like coming out of COVID-19. A lot of guys are furloughed. And I just want to say, if you're, if you're in a town that isn't you know, a, a big city, you probably have a minor league baseball team and there's probably 20 or 30 people there that are, that don't have any income right now. If you have anything that you need freelanced, be it sales, marketing, voiceover work, there's probably some people that are really hurting right now that can probably use a few, uh, a few dollars thrown their way. Um, you know, I grew up working in minor league baseball and live events, and I can tell you that it's not an industry you get into if you're looking to get rich. They know that because it's a fun industry to be in that they can underpay um, because they know that if you're not willing to work 90 hours a week for $45,000 a year, there's going to be a long list of people that that will do it because it, it is, it's fun to be in. It's it's not a game to be in if you're when you're getting older and starting to have kids, but um, it, it is a lot of fun, um, and there's a lot of industries that are hurting right now, including those folks. So if, uh, if you have any freelance work, please uh, reach out to your local uh, minor league baseball employees. Uh, they could definitely use the help. So with that being said, Jonathan, how are we doing this week? A little bit of good news uh, yesterday. After delaying the open at the date for opening uh, ice rinks in England by two weeks, uh, the government finally approved ice rinks opening. So, um, and curling's covered just under the generic ice rink category. So, curling's apparently going to start again next Sunday in England at the Preston Rink. There, they already had the ice in for the previous restart. So, I guess we'll find out pretty soon uh, if socially distanced curling will work, how it will work, and all those good things. Do you guys have return to play protocols in place or were they waiting for this to happen before talking about about how to get it done? Um, nope. Uh, it's very, like here, 
I would say compared to North America, there's a lot more government oversight and regulation. So the English Curling Association has had to put together return to play guidelines, a pretty thorough document, and that had to be submitted to Public Health England. Um, They came back and audited it a bit. The the thing that was kind of funny is they... They they clearly don't know what curling is because one of their one of their suggestions was we put a thing banning spitting on the ice <laughs> from uh, <laughs> from You're just repebbling. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of I think we ended up just kind of giving that back to them because that's not a problem. But um, it was an interesting process. I mean, the the rules are pretty similar to the other other countries and other guidelines, and I think the people on the council who put it together. Look pretty closely at the Scottish, the Canadian, and the U.S. ones. So, um, you know, similar rules: only one sweeper at a time, face masks. Um, my my least favorite part is the yelling. Loud yelling is discouraged, which for me, as you know, is along with rock crashing. Basically, loud noises is why I curl. So, I'm a bit sad about that. Well, I mean, I could. You you do like to yell. I, I from from playing front end for you. You are you are a big fan of yelling. I think it's basically Russ Howard's fault. Because when <laughs> I was entire, a kid, an entire like a, generation, yeah, entire generation has been ruined by Russ Howard yelling so loud when he was like on TV back in the day. So that's right. I wanted to yell yeah. loud like Russ. Yeah, I started. I mean, I started into this sport after Russ had retired, I, and the the first time I watched it was the 2006 Torino Olympics, and I don't think I really paid attention to to Russ's yelling during 2006. I think it is the best yell in curling history. I would say you kind of have a high pitched. You really you, you say sweep, which is good because like. There's there's no there's no confusing the word sweep when it's yelled with anything that might indicate that you need to stop sweeping, but you really get into the e's and they can occasionally like we we know that you're light if the e's get really high pitched. Yeah, well that's part of I think a good line caller knows how to communicate more than just yes sweep or don't sweep, right? Like, I think that's part of the communication, too, is how urgent is it? Because you do, if you're a sweeper playing a 10-in game, you got to pick your spots, too, yes. right? And you got to know you got to know when you're managing the stone. Because, I mean, I think to be if you're being honest, I think probably 10 seconds all out is, like, your best max effort, right? So you've got to – good sweepers, I think, know how to manage even within the 30-second sweeping window. And I think a large part of line calling is communicating that, too. Okay, so I'm going to get off on a, a tangent here before we get into actually what our um, our episode is about. In your opinion, and we kind of talked about we talked about sweeping a lot in our last episode that we did, the science fair episode with uh, Megan Balsden, because she did an entire research um, study on the effects sweeping has on the ice. Is it more important? To, like, if you you only have like ten seconds to really give your, especially if you're a non-competitive curler and out of shape like I am, is it better to put your max effort before the break or after the break? After the break point, uh, it depends what you're trying to do. So, okay. I mean, so let's set aside carving because it's like a whole other issue. Yeah. And to be and to be hundred percent honest, unless you're playing on TV, you're not carving. I know there's a lot of people post Broomgate who think they're carving. I may coach a few of them. You're not carving. I just, (laughs) I remember, 
I remember uh, at the World Bees last year, I was standing up on the coaches bench before a game with like one of the top professional coaches. And he was like, there's nobody here in this entire competition you can carve. Like in the entire <laughs> B pool, right? So, I mean, I mean, to carve, carve, it's, it's, that's like the best of the best. So let's, let's set that aside. Um, what you can do is basically drag the stone further. And I'd say if you're, you put a, a good bit of effort into it and work a bit in your technique, I think a good club curler can easily drag a stone an extra four to six feet, no problem. And that's, that's a big mark that adds a big margin of error, right? And, um, you can hold it straight. You can probably cut the break by about half a stone if you do it properly. Um, so the tricks are, if you want to hold the stone straight, most of the effectiveness comes when the stone's being released the first 10 to 20 feet. So if someone throw, someone throws tight, you'll see the sweepers hit it early to pull it out. And a lot of professional sweepers kind of throw tight. So, so a lot of professional throwers throw it a little bit tight to the broom, a little mm-hmm. bit positive on the release, and then let the sweepers hit it out if they're tight. And, and they're basically trying to edge the stone out a little bit early on. Um, once the stone hits the break point, if you're trying to stop it from curling, you're really fighting against physics at that point. It, it helps a bit, but it's it's less effective at that point than early in the shot. Um, in terms of for distance... It's as the stone's losing momentum that mm-hmm. heating up the ice lets the stone glide further, right? So we talked a little bit last time about sweeping for scratch and sweeping for heat. I think the, the basic theory these days, and it's only a theory because I think as Megan says, there's a lot we still don't know. But the basic theory these days is that heating up the ice, which is kind of basically the speed of your brush head moving back and forth on the ice, Heating up the ice lets the stone maintain its momentum longer. And the scratch effect from the brush head, it seems to be what makes the stone either curl or not curl. It affects the curling action of the stone is the, the kind of current theory, current thinking. There's a, there's a few other theories around that. Like we could, we could probably do another whole episode on sweeping theories. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, the easy answer is heat for distance and scratch for, for uh, curl. Um, Got so you want to hit it early if it's a line call. So if it's a hit shot, you're probably looking to sweep early. And if it's a draw shot or a touch shot, you want to hit it late. Yeah, I probably should have thought to ask this question last week when we talked to an actual scientist. <laughs> we, we talked right. about it a little bit, right? Yeah, she's we did. also a top competitive curler, so she she's clearly applying her her theories to the game too. So yeah, but that's the I mean that's the basic thinking of it. Very cool. Um, this week's episode is probably the most different episode we've ever done. And I know that you, you really thought I was crazy when I pitched this idea. Well, <laughs> it probably, it's the most out there. I think so you have to explain it to our listeners so they don't turn off now that they've come for the sweeping bit. Um, yeah. So I, I think the, the question that i that Jonathan and I talked about that led to me pitching this idea is how unique are curling's growing pains. Um, and so to find out, I reached out to a guy named Travis Marwarder. Travis is a journalist. He's a fiction and nonfiction author. He is a professional beach volleyball player and co-host of the Sandcast 
Beach Volleyball Podcast with Tri Bourne, who is also a professional beach volleyball player. Uh, he's also a Maryland Terrapin, but they bolted for the Big Ten, so we will not hold that against him. That's the better conference, Ryan. Well, it's the, they have more money. That's for, I wouldn't call them better, but they have more money. That's where I went, so it's the better one. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> on, uh, on my job interview at Oklahoma, at OU, um, the dean said, when we were talking about the job, he said, just remember, this is Big 12, not Big 10. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, if going to, as if going to the Big 10 meant that you didn't know how to count, which neither of the conferences knows how to count because <laughs> the Big 10 true. has 14 teams and the Big 12 has 10. Yes, <laughs> that is true. For a while, the Big Twelve, the Big Ten had twelve. Yeah, and the Big Twelve had ten. Yes, that was that was the perfect moment. I thought it really is football. It, it really, if you wanted, if you're someone in Canada or Europe who doesn't follow college football, really all you need to know about college football is there were a few years there where the conference called the Big Ten had 12 teams and the conference called the Big 12 had 10 teams. And really, that's the perfect way of explaining the insanity of college football to an outsider. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, so I talked to a beach volleyball player about curling. Yes. So why? Why did you do that? And you were asleep, so I was I was alone on this interview. But um, all right. So at first glance, you're probably thinking curling and beach volleyball don't have anything in common. But Jonathan, if you look deeper, there are some similarities. They both became official Olympic events in consecutive games: beach volleyball in '96 in Atlanta, and curling uh, two years later, '98 in Nagano. Uh, They both feature largely self-formed teams that participate on a tour system rather than as city-based franchises. Um, They're both seeing uh, tremendous growth in non-traditional areas. For beach volleyball, they're starting to see teams form that are doing very well on tour in Latvia and Poland in Norway, places that you wouldn't associate with beach volleyball. Just like in the U.S., you're starting to see um, dedicated curling facilities pop up in L.A. and Durham and all over the Sun Belt. Um, and Jonathan, they they even had player boy. They even both had player boycotts in the mid '90s. Oh wow! So what happened with a beach volleyball player boycott? Uh, you're not going to believe this, but it had to do with cresting and being able to wear your sponsor's logo at events. I would, I would believe that. <laughs> because hey, that's what happened in curling. I mean, um, even even still today, cresting's just for our teams. Just even figuring out our teams when we go to the junior Bs, the WCF rules are pretty strict, and so cresting is a big issue for any team that's trying to get sponsorship just to offset their costs. Yeah, uh, so that was that was their issue in the mid '90s, around the time that the Olympics were coming up, and a, kind of an international tour was springing up that would lead to qualification for the Olympics. But so Travis was nice enough to join us uh, to discuss, you know, the successes and challenges that his sport is seeing, uh, and I imagine we're going to find out a few things that we can apply to the growth and development of curling. How did you get into beach volleyball? Because I mean, you what you're from similar area to where I am, and you wound up going to college at Maryland. So, how on earth did you get into beach volleyball? Yeah, that's a great question. It's uh, it's a bit of a winding, long story. 
Um, I mean, like you mentioned, beach volleyball is not uh, the most popular sport uh, just north of Baltimore. Um, it's not, volleyball is just really not a, a big sport at all. I mean, even our, our girls don't really play much volleyball and then beach volleyball is just, it's not a, a thing at all, but I grew up playing pretty much every sport you could imagine. Um, just cause the, the town I grew up in is nothing but like cornfields and farms. So there's just nothing better to do, but play sports. So I grew up playing basketball, baseball, soccer. Uh, I played tennis. I swam, uh, I would golf, loved golf. Um, so, I, but I never got into volleyball, but I just, I was obsessed with sports. Um, when I moved down to Florida, uh, on the panhandle, all the like restaurants and bars down on the panhandle are like either on the beach or they have their own little private beach where they have beach volleyball courts everywhere. Hmm. And so I went out to, um, to lunch one day and I was just like grabbing a beer. I had like a sports illustrated and a beer and uh this lady saw me who was my waitress like a couple nights before and she was like hey like i know you're new to town if you want to play with us because there was a beach volleyball tournament going on and so i just kind of like jumped on her team didn't have any idea what i was doing at the time um but i just kept but i I loved the people and so they were like my first friends i made and so that was just kind of what i did socially i would just go out and like hack it around but this one guy who was at the bar a lot, uh, a guy named Judd Smith, who he used to play kind of like in AVP qualifiers, which is our our domestic tour. Um, And he said, hey, like you're pretty athletic and you could probably be pretty good if you want to take it serious. And I was like, yeah, sure. So he he started teaching me and then um, I just kind of became obsessed with it. And once I moved out to California, it's that's kind of the mecca uh, out here in Southern California. Mm-hmm. I'm in Hermosa Beach, um, which is where everyone, if you want to be a beach volleyball player, it's where you got to go. And for me, I, I was a sports writer. So it was kind of a, a perfect marriage because sports writing, either L.A. or New York City are the places that you want to go with the biggest markets. And L.A. happened to have sports writing and it happened to have beach volleyball. And so I just kind of dove headfirst after that. So you've, I mean, you've played in professional events and you've kind of been on tour. I know we were just talking and you said you were just in Atlantic City for a tournament. So how, I mean, take us through kind of, you know, the the process of how you become a beach beach volleyball player and how you you fund yourself. Because I mean, I don't think, (laughs) no offense, but I don't think you're on the Olympic program, but you are high level beach volleyball player. Tell us, how does the funding work for you guys? Yeah, that's a great question. So Outside of the top, maybe 15, well, top like 10 players uh, in either gender, um, most people have either full-time jobs or enough kind of side gigs to where they'll have a pretty autonomous schedule where they can take two, three weeks off to go play a couple tournaments around the country or around the world if, if you're playing on the FIVB, which is our international tour. Um, so for me, I've worked remote pretty much since college uh, because I'm a writer and I I can really kind of write from anywhere there's Wi-Fi. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been really fortunate in that my writing has allowed me to have a really free schedule where I can play in pretty much any tournament I want. And that it's also been very helpful that I'm really the only beach volleyball writer there is. So that's just been my full-time job the last three years. It's just writing on beach volleyball and then supplementing that as a player so the better i get as a player the more respected and credible i am as a writer um oh well so that's 
it's kind of a unique situation for me, but most people will be, you know, waiters and waitresses, bartenders. Uh, a lot of people would drive like Uber and Lyft or work at a gym. So they get a free membership, a good schedule and money on the side. Um, but the, the way it works is uh, kind of similar to golf where you travel in these qualifier tournaments and the top handful of people make it out of the qualifier and into the main draw. Uh, and golf has a similar system where I think they're called rabbits, where you kind of bounce from tournament to tournament. And if, if you make it through the tournament, then you're into golf's version of, of a main draw. Um, and then once you're in main draw, then then you're making money. And if you make enough main draws, then you're automatically into the main draw where you don't have to go through the qualifier, which is brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our domestic tour usually has eight stops every year. And then the international tour usually has kind of 15 big money stops and then maybe another 15 moderate money stops where, and I'm kind of in that tier of it's a star system. So like all the Olympic guys will play in fours and five stars and then I'll play in the ones, twos and threes. So I'm kind of nudging up against that upper level, but not close to, there's a pretty big gap between the top and the mid level players. You have no idea how familiar this all sounds. <laughs> when you, it's, it, it, it's a discussion that has been going on for years uh, in, in our sport because, you know, have you guys noticed kind of the same thing that the gap between kind of your level and those, those four and five star teams has gotten bigger in the last few years? It's, it's funny because with beach volleyball, and I'm sure curling has got to be the same where you really, age isn't as big of a factor in beach volleyball as it is in a sport like football or basketball where the impact is so much harder and the sports are so much more physical. So, I mean, the best players in the United States are this guy named Phil Dahlhauser, who's he mm-hmm. turned 40 and he won a gold medal in Beijing in 2008 and competed in London and Brazil and he's 40 and he's still the best blocker on the planet. And so it's not that the gap has gotten bigger. It's that it's the, the guys at the top, have stayed the same because the longevity of the sport is so much different. And so we do have a generation kind of the generation of players and sort of in my age group, I'm 29 are starting to come up. Uh, my podcast host, uh, Triborn, he actually just beat Dahlhauser in an AVP. Um, and oh, wow. he is our, our second ranked Olympic team right now for Tokyo. Um, and then his partner's Trevor Crabb, who's 30. Then there's a guy named Taylor Crab, who's one of the best defenders in the world, who's 28. So my generation is sort of coming up to replace kind of Phil Dahlhauser's 40, another blocker who's been to every Olympics since Beijing, Jake Gibb. He's 41. So he's going to be kind of moving out after Tokyo, too. So once those guys who have been around for a long time kind of retire after Tokyo, there's going to be a huge shift and there's going to be a lot more parity. You said, you know, 10, about 10 teams, both genders, you know, those are the ones that are truly professional volleyball players. Do you think that number has, you know, in, in beach volleyball joined the Olympic program in 96, uh, curling did so in 98. Do you think that that number has grown or shrunk since the, uh, since beach volleyball got into the Olympics? That's, it's such a good question. And that is a, a topic of debate for a lot of people. So before beach volleyball became an Olympic sport, the AVP 
um, which is our, our domestic tour. It's like the PGA or NBA version of beach volleyball was it was thriving. So it, it was the best beach volleyball in the world was in the U S and I mean, guys were making upwards of a million dollars a year. Um, because wow. it was like the first lifestyle sport there was, I mean, this was before snowboarding got big. It was before, um, you know, all these kind of Red Bull sports got big. And so beach volleyball had all these sponsors. They were having like 25 tournaments a year with big money in it. And, um, so guys were making a ton of money and a couple of the guys wanted to spread it internationally because they, you know, they wanted it to be an Olympic sport and to be worldwide. And so once the AVP sort of seeded control of where the best volleyball in the world was. Uh, now you have to play on the FIVB to qualify for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. We started losing our top guys going to the world tour because a lot of times events will conflict. So the AVP will have eight events per, per year and maybe four of them will conflict with a four or five star, a big Olympic qualifying event for the FIVB. And so the best volleyball in the world is no longer in the United States, but somewhere out there on the world tour. And so it's decreased the amount of professional beach volleyball players making a living in the United States, but has increased it exponentially around the world. So, I mean, the best team in the world in beach volleyball is in Norway and the next one in Russia. And then Brazil has this unbelievable pipeline of maybe four to six teams that could be in the top 15 probably. Um, and so around the world, there's a ton of professional beach volleyball players, but in the United States, that number has decreased a ton since it became an Olympic sport. Is that kind of the biggest change that, that you've seen since it's joined the Olympics? Or are there other big changes that you've seen in addition to that? I think so recently beach volleyball became a collegiate sport. Mm-hmm. which I think is probably going to have a massive impact on the game if if it can stay a collegiate sport. Because right now with COVID and college football getting shut down, it's it's like not a, a guarantee that that's going to stay a sport yeah. too much longer because we need funding from somewhere for it to happen. But, I mean, on the AVP, the our best players are getting younger and younger every year on the women's side because there's that college pipeline where they're getting coached by the best American players we've ever had. And they're coming out of the college ranks and straight onto the pro tour. And they're just dominating. It's, it's fun to see. Um, so I, I think that that's probably had the biggest impact um, since the Olympics became a sport. And it, it's really returning the best beach volleyball on the women's side to the United States. Cause in our Olympic rankings right now, um, to go to Tokyo, we have four of the top 10 teams in the world on the women's side. And it's, it's a blast to watch. And I think three of those teams are teams featuring individuals who played beach volleyball in college. Um, and the other one is Kerry Walsh Jennings, who's been to five Olympics. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> she may, she may wind up going to eight before it's all said and done. I think. <laughs> Um, and you, you know, talking about the NCAA, well, one, it seems like it's a pretty cheap sport to fund yeah. and obviously it's going to help title, um, title nine compliance for a lot of those, a lot of those schools. And you look and some of the schools that are sponsoring beach volleyball are not schools that you would associate with beach volleyball, like Nebraska, obviously Nebraska is a, a, a team volleyball powerhouse, right? But then on top of them, LSU in Utah, they have beach volleyball. Is that kind of part of the Olympic effect or is it more so to do with 
um, it's a cheap sport to have and it helps with Title IX compliance? That's a, a really good question. So I think with schools like Nebraska and Utah, who are excellent indoors, they sort of use beach almost as a training program for indoors, mm-hmm. just to, to get their girls' touches in the spring um, and to sort of get them moving around differently. It's low impact, so it's kind of low impact training. And then, you know, Nebraska's real focus is indoor. I mean, they're, they're one of the best indoor programs in the country. But a program like LSU, I, I would have to think that that is the trickle-down effect that the Olympics have had, where we're now seeing the generation of girls who were probably watching Carrie Walsh Jennings and, and Misty May win three straight Olympic gold medals. And they're like, hey, like that's a sport I want to give a try. I think this is the generation we're starting to see compete in college. So the fact that there are so many programs popping up around the country is a response to just the sheer quantity of beach volleyball players at the grassroots level now. I mean, there are thousands of clubs around the country in areas you would never guess. Like I'm playing a tournament mm-hmm. in Cincinnati next weekend. Oh, wow. Cincinnati has four indoor beach volleyball facilities within like an hour and a half's drive. It's crazy. So we're just seeing these pockets of beach volleyball pop up everywhere. Cincinnati's also getting a de- dedicated curling club soon. Right. So that's I another yeah, that's another place. Yeah, it's another you know, I'm in I'm in Richmond in a couple hours south of here in, in Durham. They've got a dedicated curling facility. So you're starting to see the non-traditional areas start to embrace these sports. Um, you know, what, what efforts are, is beach volleyball doing um, to help grow the sport in those non-traditional areas? You know, are they helping fund some of those, those indoor facilities that you've talked about? Or is it more of a marketing push? What are they doing to kind of help push it? I think a lot of it is probably uh, business savvy individuals who maybe have a passion for volleyball and they see the demand for beach volleyball and they just apply it. Um, I know that, I mean, if you go to Texas, Texas is pot, I mean, new facilities pop up like every month because there are just so many kids who want coaching and they want tournaments and they want experience because if you can get a scholarship to play beach volleyball, if you get your girl good enough, you can get a semi or at least a reduced uh, education. You know, yeah. I think it's just people who look at it and they're like, you know, there's a, a huge demand out here for it. Let's build a facility. Let's br- hire some coaches and let's bring it in. Um, so I, it's not necessarily that, you know, the AVP is funding these things, although they're doing their part. They have a grassroots program um, where they're, they have hundreds of tournaments around the country where kids are playing. But I think for the most part, it's just people seeing the demand for it and just providing it. So you talk, you talked about how the on the women's side, you know, they have college teams that they can go play in, and that's kind of been a big change in how players are developed on that side. But how has it changed on the men's side? Like how are players developing now compared to maybe before the Olympics? The the men's side, uh, I think it has remained sort of frustratingly stagnant. So what what happens for the guys is that most of the men play indoor in college. And then they'll go play indoor overseas somewhere, you know, in, in Germany or, or Italy uh, or Greece or Poland or, or wherever. And then once they're they're through with indoor, they'll come back when they're 27 or 28 years old and then they'll play beach, which is why a lot of our best men's players are usually on the older side. Like our men's players usually peak when they're 34 or 35 years old because hmm. they're just transitioning from indoor to beach. Um, but we really don't have 
kind of a, a pipeline or developmental system for men's beach volleyball. I, I think that you know soccer fans could probably echo similar frustrations uh, where you know you got clubs overseas that are developing these kids from when they're 10 years old. And so they could play pro when they're 16 where, you know, in the U S it's similar with beach volleyball, where there are very few opportunities uh, for, you know, boys or, or young men to play beach volleyball. It's mostly just a, a transition after indoors over. Switching over to kind of the, the marketing aspect um, those those top teams that you talked about, and on, on the curling side, you'll see you know these teams are self self formed for the right. most part. You know, in some of the countries in Europe, those those teams are put together by basically that country's Olympic committee, and your you know your team Sweden, your team Scotland, whatever. But in mm-hmm. the U.S. and Canada, the teams are mostly self formed. And it sounds like it's the same way in, in beach volleyball. You know, the the federations aren't putting teams together per se in beach volleyball is that right right so from a marketing standpoint what are some of the, you know what are some of the unique ways that these teams in beach volleyball are doing to try and grow fan support and to to sign on sponsors we've seen teams in the in on the curling side you know they've they have pretty unique um personas on social media and it's helped yeah. grow their fan base are you seeing the same thing in beach volleyball yeah and uh, I'm, I'm still on board for for team schuster I'm, uh, I don't know if they're still together, but I'm still rooting for them. They are. <laughs> they had uh, they had one player change, but yeah, they're still they're still trucking, and um, I I have a feeling that you might see them again in uh, uh, in Beijing. Oh, nice! I love it. Um, but yeah, so beach volleyball, the the teams. I'll use my buddy Try uh, for example, who I have a podcast with him. Um, so he's partnered with this guy named Trevor Crab, and they grew up together in Hawaii. Um, and so they're kind of leveraging this like childhood relationship. They both grew up in Hawaii. Um, they're pretty loud. They talk a lot of trash. Uh, I, I don't know if trash <laughs> talk is a big thing in curling, by the way. I w- is that something that happens out there? No, it's, uh, it, it was invented by the Scots and the same people that invented golf. So there's a little bit, you know, we haven't we haven't quite gotten to trash talk yet. It's still it's still pretty respectful. The only the only big the, all the trash talk really happens uh, after the game when the the winning team has to buy the first round. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Um, but yeah, so every team will sort of get together and try to figure out, you know, what makes us unique. What can we pitch to sponsors? that no other team could um and some teams it's a struggle where they're like we're kind of pretty vanilla and and so that's why it's a lot of teams where the only the top guys will have decent sponsors because they can you know phil dahlhauser for example can say i've been to three olympics you know and Mm -hmm. sponsors are are jumping at them um but then you look at some guys who are I'll, i'll use my buddies uh madison and riley mckibben for example, they're kind of we're on the same level where we're low level main draw of the AVP. We've beaten some good teams, had some decent finishes, but we're sort of on the the second tier when it comes to the Olympic guys. But they have their own YouTube channel and they produce these mm. incredible videos, um, kind of documentary style. Uh, some of them are tutorials. A lot of them are features on players and sponsors love them because they have like 80,000 subscribers on YouTube or something so they can provide something. So for a lot of beach volleyball players, it's more about figuring out what I can do to add value for my sponsor 
And some of them are just better at it than others. So it really comes down to the individual figuring out how can I create value for my sponsor rather than just posting something on Instagram and be like, hey, you know, I'm wearing this shirt, 20% off discount code, you're <laughs> using whatever. Yeah, uh, curling, I don't think we have as many characters as some of the other sports, although I'm sure you're familiar with Matt Hamilton from Team Schuster. He definitely oh, yeah. counts as a character. Um, <laughs> I mean, is that is that really what it takes to, to, to get sponsorship when you're a team that's, you know, hasn't quite broken through yet and, you know, you're trying to get the funding to get out there and play more and, and do it is, you know, you, you almost have to have to play a part almost. That's one way to do it. I mean, when you look at a lot of the, Sort of, I'll call them lifestyle sports. Uh, I think that beach volleyball, um, surfing, uh, curling would probably be classified as, as sort of a, a lifestyle sport um, where you have to either create your own personal brand, whether you're playing a part or kind of building your own character to play out there, uh, or you build something that creates value. So for some people, it's you know talking trash out there and sort of adopting this like WWE wrestling. I'm going to be loud kind of persona. Uh, and for me, I've been fortunate enough to get a handful of sponsors because of my platform as a writer. Um, and the podcast that I have with try where I can add real value for sponsors rather than just throwing up kind of a meaningless post on Instagram. So it's, it's kind of either that balance of, all right, I need to be loud and recognizable or I need to add value somehow and, and create something business wise. So since since curling joined the Olympics, we, we've seen a significant chasm between the harp, the high performance players, kind of like in in beach volleyball, like you said, those top ten that they're they're professionals, and then kind of the club level player that still tries to play competitively. It sounds like that's not quite um, the case in beach volleyball. That you still do have teams that um, you, it seems like you almost have a mid tier. You know, the, the the club player, the you know the a good group of, of up and coming players that haven't quite broken through. And then those top players, um, but has, has the decline of that AVP tour, has that, what impact has that had on help on helping to grow your sport? That's a, a good question. So I would kind of break our sport down into maybe four tiers where we have our, our Olympic guys, um, which I would say there are about, four to six teams uh, per gender who would qualify in that category of top notch. Like you guys could make the Olympics and it wouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, then I would say tier two would be sort of the, the guys who are either younger and coming up on that level, or, you know, they just found their sweet spot. They're not going to go for the Olympics. They like playing beach volleyball, um, but it's not like they're everything. And then you'd have this third tier of guys who are kind of upper qualifier level, who they'll make it to the main draw every now and then. Um, but you know it's kind of half and half. They'll lose in some qualifiers, make it in half, uh, and then you have your your next tier of kind of the other players who you know they'll they'll travel every now and then they'll play in some tournaments, but it's not a super serious thing. Um, so as far as the the chasm goes, uh, and and the AVP tour declining, it's been funny because so Donaldson the tour went, went bankrupt. I'll just give you a little background: the tour went bankrupt in twenty ten. And so there were no events in 2011. And then Donald's son, who's the current owner, he bought it and he ran two events in 2012, a handful of events in 13, and there's been eight pretty much every year since. So 
in my time playing, I only started playing on the AVP since 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been great. It's actually grown. So it, volleyball is sort of starting to grow again in the United States. But I think we were definitely hit pretty hard when it went bankrupt. We lost a lot of phenomenal talent on the beach that when you don't have your professional sport for two years and, and that's all you did for a living, you naturally have to get out of the sport. So I think we're starting to come up again in that sense. And we're starting to see kind of a, a mini boom in beach volleyball. How do you continue to market the sport then? You know, if you're, you know, when you lose two years of having the professional tour, you know, was the, was the Federation able to get kind of, you know, um, creative with how they tried to grow the sport, even though there wasn't, you know, the professional tour that people could aspire to there for a couple of years? Well, there, so there was no domestic tour, but there was still, uh, and there were a couple like kind of small upstart little mini tours uh, that, that ended up flaming out, but there was still the FIVB. The international tour was unaffected by the mm-hmm. AVP's bankruptcy. So all the guys who were good enough to play internationally still went overseas and they, but they just went overseas for, you know, four or five months and just kind of stayed there and played every tournament they could, you know, in Europe, Asia, Africa, wherever it may be. Um, so in that sense that our top guys weren't super impacted, but it was the guys who were kind of coming up where they had to go take full-time jobs or, you know, they were starting families or whatever. And they kind of had the, their legs taken out from them. And the, the tours themselves in turn, you know, it's like the PGA tour. It's like curling's tours that, that, that we have, we have the, the grand slam of curling. And then you have, um, kind of a, a master's tour in Europe for, for the tours themselves, you know, you're, you're not really playing to city based franchises. What are some of the ways that the tours, the AVP and the FIVP VB, um, what are some of the things that they've done to try and grow, um, you know, grow attendance and grow, um, grow advertising? One of the, the ways that I think the AVP is, is doing a tremendous job of is, they're returning to the same spots every year and they're building fan bases in the cities that we go to. So we go to Austin every year, for example. And in Austin, the first year I went, there was a decent amount of fans there, but now it's sold out pretty much. The the VIP box seats are sold out within 10 minutes of the AVP putting it out because that fan base is huge now. And every year, like those guys mark it off in their calendar. Like this is when the AVP is coming to town we're going all four days that it's out there. And then we go to New York and it's kind of the same deal. And and Seattle is the same deal. There's no marketing needed when there's a tournament in Southern California. People come out by the thousands whenever it's right. Huntington Beach or Hermosa Beach or Manhattan. Um, the stadium will be packed the entire time, pretty much standing room only. Um, so it's really, you know, Donald's doing a great job of, of establishing fan bases in each of these little stops. And maybe he'll expand to more. I, I don't know. But what he's doing right now is kind of building up fan bases in each city and going back. And the FIVB has a similar thing where they know the cities that love beach volleyball. Uh, Vienna, Austria is obsessed with beach volleyball. They had, yeah. um, I think, a 40,000-seat stadium that's, that was sold out for the entire week. They had World Championship wow. one year. Um, Hamburg, Germany, uh, similar thing where they, had, they used a tennis stadium and it was sold out for every single match. Um, and so there's Gestad, uh, Switzerland is another big one. 
so they the each tour kind of knows where the big stops are and that's where they have their their biggest money tournaments because that's where you're going to get the most fans how are, how are they growing internationally or what are they doing to to grow it internationally cuz you look at the you look at the leaderboard in like you said Norway but then you see Poland Latvia you know places that you're not going to associate with beach volleyball doing pretty well is that is it kind of a similar thing that we're seeing in curling where you've got the Olympic committees kind of funding teams and getting them out there or is it just from grassroots growth of the sport I think each each federation is different so the Brazilian Federation, for example, so Brazil, their two biggest sports over there, it's soccer and beach volleyball. So their federation, I was talking to um, this guy named Marcio, who he won silver in the 08 Olympics. Um, we were at a tournament together in, uh, in Austria, and he was saying that the Banco de Brazil funds their federation $100 million for every quad. So they're bankrolling their guys and which is why you know you look at beach volleyball rankings and brazil's got just one ridiculous wow. team after the next it's amazing mm-hmm. um so each federation is different with how they fund their athletes and how they support them some don't really support them at all they're just sort of there to give two guys a federation to play for and a shot to get to the olympics representing that country um but what's funny is you know we mentioned norway is the number one team in the world. And, you know, their their indoor team isn't much because Norway is such a tiny country. Um, and a lot of the small countries are actually great at beach volleyball because you only need two guys. And so it's tough to field an indoor team where there are six guys on the court and you probably need maybe 15 to 20 on the team. With beach, you just need two. And you don't get subs. So you, any country can find two guys who can play beach mm-hmm. volleyball pretty well. So Latvia has always been really strong. Norway is really strong now. Um, I mean, Brazil's huge, and, and the U.S. Uh, is another big power. Um, but a lot of the smaller countries are actually looking at beach as one of their best shots to win an Olympic medal because you only need two people. Yeah, that was kind of the driving force behind curling, adding mixed doubles, was you only needed two curlers. And in theory, countries that have a smaller base of curlers could potentially compete because, like you said, you only need two. And it also, it, it added funding because it was another medal uh, for curling in the Olympics and another medal for uh, Olympic federations to chase. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you see that in beach volleyball? Why don't you see mixed teams uh, in, in beach? Mixed is like co-ed? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, there's no tours, but they're, so they're trying to find, to add different volleyball um, I guess, versions into the Olympics. So snow volleyball is something I played last year. Oh, wow. And they're trying to add that to the Winter Olympics. So maybe we'll see each other one day at the Winter Olympics. Oh, man. Uh, you'll be representing <laughs> curling. I'll be out there playing snow volleyball. With you. It's as ridiculous as it sounds. <laughs> um, but then there's another beach version of the sport called King of the Court that they're trying to get into the Olympics too. So I don't know why co-ed hasn't been tried before that's honestly a fantastic question and my wife heard the question and she looked at me like hey that's a good idea <laughs> um, <laughs> i like it <laughs> so, but they're just trying to add different versions of the sport into the olympic to try to get more funding from the mm-hmm. IOC and then you know more funding to each federation you know and one of the things 
that they've talked about it as being the way for for curling to continue to grow in the U.S. You know, we had that spike obviously after Team Schuster uh, in Pyeongchang, um, but one of the driving forces to keep it going is going to be TV and finding ways to get creative with TV rights to get curling on television. You know, growing up. I remember watching beach volleyball on ESPN's hot summer nights, like yeah. Karch Karai, Ken Steffes, um, Alan Allen, those guys. Um, but now it looks like the AVP is getting creative with its broadcast model. And I see it's on Amazon prime. Um, how has that been going? How has, how has kind of focusing on, on streaming kind of changed things for the sport? I think that streaming on Amazon is, is such a good move. I think if you look at the demographic that beach volleyball is likely to attract, which is kind of that, you know, 18 to 34 year old demographic, I mean, 18 to 34 year olds don't really watch TV mm-hmm. stream stuff. Um, and I think with, with it being on Amazon, I, I think it's so clutch because you're, you're now, now you're partners with one of the biggest names in business right now. Um, you can watch replays whenever you want. So long as you have a prime membership for the first time, maybe in history, the AVP is getting paid by the streaming service to, for the product. So it used to be reversed. So the AVP used to have to buy the time slot from NBC or ESPN and then sell ads, mm-hmm. make up for that purchase. Um, like, so the, the 30 second Ford commercial would help, you know, bring back that million dollar investment they paid for the you know two hour time slot or whatever it may be. But Amazon paid the AVP for the rights to stream their sport, which is huge for a sport where money does not come in a ton of supply. Um, so I, I think them getting on Amazon is awesome and they can put their own unique flair on it. Uh, they have a great team, uh, I think, producing the AVP. I think they did a tremendous job with the three tournament series that they just had in, in Long Beach um, a couple weeks ago. So I, I think that that was a huge move. Other people want to see it be more on kind of a more traditional TV network. But, you know, if if I'm a kid and I've never heard of beach volleyball and I'm scrolling down the TV, you know, and I see beach volleyball next to the Avengers on my TV, I'm going to put on the Avengers, you know? Yeah. So I I think that getting on a streaming service is, is such a, it's a prescient move. I mean, you're looking at the future and, and more people are consuming video content and sports content via streaming services like Amazon. Yeah, I can tell you, I, I'm probably on the, I'm on the edge of that, uh, of that age range that you just mentioned. I'm 36, but I don't have cable. I've got, but I've got Amazon Prime and I've got Hulu. But, um, and you know, when, when I'm, you know, I have access to YouTube TV if I want to watch live sports. But yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not subscribing to cable. And I think that, you know, the days of, the days of uh, kind of media markets mattering and. To, to get cable subscriptions, I think those days are those days are over. Uh, I think so too, and you know that's why. Like, you know, I used to cover college football, and when yep. so Fox Sports One used to televise, I think it was. Gosh, I don't even know what it was, but it was some kind of like truck races. And like, I'm not going to get into truck racing because Fox Sports One had it on TV, and I actually turned it on. You know, I think that being on being on TV is not the the golden goose answer that that everyone keeps kind of touting is like, oh, that's going to be the difference. I think it's really just building a good product, um, getting paid for that product 
and then marketing it to the right demographics. Yeah, that's like you said, the reason that your Maryland Terrapins are in the Big Ten was because they switched right at the point when media markets and cable subscribers really mattered to college football. And now that's not the case. And I think the Big Ten might be might be second guessing what they did with the, the two moves that they made. <laughs> saying it, it wasn't a purely academic move for Maryland to get to the Big Ten. Uh, I'm saying it is definitely, it was definitely not a purely but academic I was, move. And I was laughing when, uh, our president at the time, uh, Wallace Lowe, and I don't know, Wallace Lowe, yeah. but he, uh, he was talking about like the big tens academics and all their programs. I was like, come on, man. No one's buying that. <laughs> <laughs> big 10 had more money. I'm sad to see us out of the ACC. It's still so weird for me that the Terps are a big 10 school. I know. Yeah. I still, it took a few years, although I've kind of, I've moved on. I was at. I was at the I was at the CJ Brown game the last time that Virginia Tech played Maryland okay. uh, in Lane Stadium when Brown beat us in two overtimes. Um, <laughs> so I'm not I'm not sad that you're gone. <laughs> Wait, no, you're a Hokie. I am. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, I, I've been up to Virginia Tech a, a few times. It's a beautiful campus. It is it's there's there's two drives a year going out to games that are just gorgeous. It's always the the last weekend in the the last couple weekends in October and the first weekend in November. It's driving from Richmond to Blacksburg. It's the best drive that I've ever been on just because it's so gorgeous driving out there. Yeah, the just that the ACC in general has to be the conference with the prettiest schools. No offense to the Big Ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, the ACC schools actually have seasons. I think that's the difference. True, true. Um, <laughs> trying to get back on on task. A couple, a couple quick hitters for you, and I'll let you go. Um, you know, recently the big news in curling was that we finally saw pay equity for the Canadian national championships for the men and the women. Um, has this been an each issue for beach volleyball, or is there pretty much usually been pay equity for the men's side and the women's side? Uh, it has not been an issue at all. So. Um... In 97, the AVP went bankrupt for the first time. It's been kind of a theme for our sport that we go bankrupt and someone else buys it. Uh, a guy named Leonard Armato bought it. And then so that his era, which was 2000 through, two, through 2010, uh, was huge. And players were making tons of money, um, kind of similar to what the players in the 90s were making. Um, but hmm. he, when he started the tour up back in the 2000s, uh, the prize money was split straight down the middle. Um, you know, if it was a three hundred thousand dollar tournament, one hundred and fifty went to the men, one hundred fifty to the women, um, and it's always been like that. Uh, when Donald Sun bought the tour in two thousand and twelve, uh, same thing. Uh, the men and women prize money is the same. I have no idea what the sponsorship money breakdown would look like, um, but when you look at the numbers, I mean, it, it makes sense. Um, I don't know what the demand would be either way, but I would honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if prize money skewed more towards the women. Just oh, wow. there's way more of them. And honestly, our women are better than the men at the moment. So, but it's never been an issue. Pay equity has always been, as long as I've been playing, it's been straight down the center. All right. And then these uncertain times, uh, curling, curling's facing some problems getting back up and running because well, mainly curling clubs are about as good an incubator for viruses as you could ever <laughs> come up with. 
Um, but you, you know, as you said, you just recently played in a tournament. How are things going for beach volleyball and what are the ways that the tours are, what are some of the things the tours are doing to protect players and make sure that these tournaments happen? The AVP did a phenomenal job, uh, putting on a pretty COVID free, uh, as COVID conscious tournament series, I guess you could call it. So they built a site, uh, in the in a Long Beach the Long Beach Convention Center parking lot, um, they had everyone test twice a week. Um, every single AVP player, coach, and staff member, by the way, tested negative for four straight weeks. Wow! Um, and this is this is when things were really starting to heat up in California too, right? Yeah, and which I think when you think about the the kind of sport that would lend itself to keeping its athletes healthy from this specific disease. Um, and most diseases in general, I mean, beach volleyball has to be high on the list. I mean, we're outside. Uh, there's only two people on the team. Uh, UV light is literally everywhere, which apparently helps kill the virus. It's like the exact opposite of curling. Um, <laughs> and, um, but Donald, uh, he put all these measures in place. There were, you know, maybe a hundred people allowed on site at any time. So when there were more teams, media members weren't allowed. And then as the teams got reduced, media members were allowed in to stream it um, for Amazon. Um, and if anyone tested positive, they were, they couldn't play the series. So um, all the, all the kind of AVP affiliates um, have been putting on tournaments in similar fashions where, you know, if you're off the court, you got to wear a mask. You know, if you're just sitting down between matches, you know, try to just hang out with your partner. Um, so they've been putting measures in place, but the biggest measure to put in place really is just keeping tournaments outside, which it, we're outside for, you know, 12 hours in a day during a tournament. And there's just all these natural things that seem to guard us against the disease. Cause I mean, none of us, I mean, there's a couple, maybe a hundred of us in our community that are playing beach volleyball semi for a living. And, uh, none of us have tested positive. So wow. it's a pretty safe sport at the moment. Wow, that's awesome. Um, two, all right, two more for you. One, what is what is the most impressive or unique thing that you've seen from either a, a team or an organization or a tour to to market the sport? The most impressive thing to market the sport, I think, uh, this this teenage kid uh, named Parker Conley, who lives in Arizona. Uh, he's just a computer science guy and he loves editing videos and every sport, like you look at basketball and you, you hop on Instagram and there's thousands of basketball highlight accounts mm -hmm. and there wasn't a single one for beach volleyball. And so this kid was just like, well, I'm going to start putting up highlights on Instagram. And in like a year, he's got like a hundred thousand followers on Instagram and he's making just all these highlight videos for players where now players are asking him like paying him to get like highlight videos and then they're posting it. And it's sort of making beach volleyball look like a pretty cool sport. Cause he's just posting all the coolest stuff that people are doing. It's kind of similar to what house of highlights has done with basketball. And um, it, it's been cool to see. Cause now like people, it's a thing to get on the, the page's name is bounce beach and it, people are like, hey, I got on Bounce Beats. Like, it's a huge thing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but I, I think that he's probably been the biggest marketing force in the sport. And then I mentioned my buddies, uh, the McKibben brothers, Riley and Madison, who started their YouTube channel. 
they've been huge and uh they're going to be actually appearing on a reality television show uh in the fall because of their channel which is pretty cool yeah it's amazing what happens when you encourage people to share your highlights and don't um and, and don't try to take them down for copyright violations. Cause that was the big thing with the NBA was the NBA was like this. You don't understand. This is free advertising. No, we are not filing a copyright claim yeah. against this YouTube video that has 2 million views. It's free advertising for us. Whereas major league baseball is doing the exact opposite in his state trying to take down gifts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. It's amazing what happens when you encourage people to share your content. Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I would say the the tours themselves have actually worked, been working with this kid and saying, "Hey, like, can you put together videos for us?" And they'll send him clips to put on his Instagram account. So they're doing the exact opposite thing of the MLB, where they're actually encouraging him, like you mentioned, it's free advertising. And they'll be like, "Hey, like, check out this one," and he'll put it up. And sure enough, that's so you know, cool. Forty thousand views later, <laughs> it's pretty solid. That's so cool. Uh, and then I guess finally. Before we let you go, what what do you think is the future? What does the future of your sport look like? Um, and what what are some of the challenges you think that the sport's going to face coming forward? I, I think the future of our sport uh, looks female. Um, when you just look at the sheer number of women players out there, it and the talent, especially in the United States. I mean, I, I think that the U.S. is going to have the, you know, I mean, ten of the top twenty five teams in the world every year for the next, you know. I mean, the future is pretty much limitless for them because of how big it is at the grassroots level and how big it is at the college level should it remain um, a college sport. Um, But in terms of the sport as a whole, um, I think it'll probably remain fairly niche and it'll just be building up one big hotspot after the next. Like I said, we have Austin, uh, New York, Southern California, uh, Florida is still relatively untapped in terms of the AVP. I think that that's a huge demographic. So I think it's just building up one community after the next till we can have kind of a thriving tour that we had in the 90s where there was 20, 25 stops a year where you could have, you know, 50, 70 players on each side, uh, on each gender, making a, a decent living playing the sport. All right, I, all right, all right I lied. So what what would the ideal mix for you be between tour stops in Southern California and tour stops spread out to try and grow it? I think it sort of depends on the goal of the sport. So I think if, if Donaldson wants to make like the most profitable tour, he would never leave Southern California. Yeah. Um, I think (laughs) if he wants to have it grow as much as possible across the country and kind of have some really fun, cool tournaments, um, I think probably three or four Southern California stops a year and probably coming back every month. So start in Southern Cal, we usually have our season opener in Huntington beach in May. So maybe the first weekend of every month we'll be back in Southern California and just kind of keep coming back to the well. Um, and then, you know, two weeks later go to Austin then come back to Manhattan beach and then go to New York, come back to Hermosa beach and then go out to Seattle and then come back to long beach um, so you can kind of, you can keep tapping those huge demographics while also expanding to the ones that we're trying to build. Very cool. Travis, thank you so much for doing this. Um, a lot of this just sounded so familiar. Uh, it's good to know that, that 
curling's problems are not unique to curling. Um, just let everybody know where they can find you, where they can find your books, because you're a published fiction and nonfiction author. Yeah. Um, and where they can tune into the Sandcast with you and Triborn. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Ryan. I hope uh, I hope you guys can get out curling sometime soon, or maybe it gets cold enough you can just do some outdoor curling. Uh, is that a thing? Uh, yeah, definitely not in Richmond, Virginia, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I hope that you guys can can get back out there too, because I know it's uh it's brutal to lose the ability to play the sport that you love, um, and just kind of what you're passionate about. So I'm rooting for you guys, but uh, you can follow me on uh, Instagram. Uh, my name is uh, Tram Mew. Tram was my nickname from like fifth grade till currently. Um, <laughs> my last name, and then my books. You can find them all on Amazon uh, if you just type in my name. Uh, they'll they'll pop up for you. Um, and then our our podcast. It's called Sandcast uh, Beach Volleyball with Triborn and Travis Mawerder. That's on Spotify. Um, it's on Apple podcast it's kind of anywhere you you would find a podcast you'll find it there any good guests coming up uh we have uh trevor and taylor crab uh the two brothers and it's funny because they used to play together and, and they're brothers and so they they hated each other while they played together but they also were roommates and they just started a, a go together because they're sponsored by um, a couple whiskey companies so they have a show called drinking whiskey with the crabs so oh man that's great they're our number one and two so taylor the younger brother plays with Jake Gibb um, and they're the, our top U S team in the Olympic race. And Trevor Taylor's brother is playing with try uh, my podcast host and they're the number two ranked Olympic team. So it's a funny little rivalry between them because now they're best friends. So we're, we're having both of them come on um, next week. So it should be a fun one. I can tell you that every curling team's dream is to get sponsored and paid to drink whiskey and, <laughs> and talk about it. So that's, ama that's amazing. All right, Travis, thank you again. Uh, this was an absolute blast. Ryan, thanks for having me on. All right, Jonathan, how well of a job did I do equating beach volleyball to curling? I, I, I was persuaded. And I, it was, I think it's good because there's a lot of whining and curling right now from all different quarters. Uh, and maybe curling isn't that unique, right? I think that's, that's your main point is that a lot of these amateur Olympic sports struggle as they try to professionalize, mm -hmm. you know, and I, it's actually one of those funny things when the Olympics are on, I actually like, I like beach volleyball, but I actually really like team volleyball. I actually think it's a really exciting game format. And I'm always surprised that there's never been like a truly big breakthrough moment for team volleyball as a team sport or the professional team sport. I have no idea why that's the case. I think it is the case in Europe. It's big in Europe. It's kind of is, but it's not like, like here it's all soccer. Um, well, in the UK, soccer, rugby, cricket, right? Are the three big professional mm -hmm. team sports. Like you can see it as on like the second tier sports channels, but it's not like a big... Um, like big professional sport, if you will. Yeah. I think it's in, in the U S it's more because it's college. Especially yeah. for indoor. But it, I'm just always puzzled why some sports are able to make that leap to being like a full-time professional sport and others don't. Is it something like in the sport itself or is it just that like some sports had better marketing departments at key junctures or had, were better able to get on TV? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's the case. I mean, in terms of the Olympics, like my favorite 
summer Olympic sport to watch is team handball, which the U.S. is absolutely terrible at. And every four years, they have the same argument. You know, what if we just got the best athletes in the world and taught them handball? You know, we totally dominated this. And it's the same argument that they've kind of made for soccer for a long time. Yeah. And obviously, it's not the case because that's not that's not what ha- what is happening. No. In terms of what? The best people in the world taking up handball? Or just taking, basically taking the athletes that haven't made it in the NBA or the NFL and seeing if they'll try handball and then winning at the Olympics. Now you got to go with the Chinese model. You got to go with like, you basically grab the athletic kids at four and then you just sort them through the different sports at the sports academies and all they do is sports and then you cast them aside at 18 if they don't make it. Jeez. (laughs) That is certainly an option. Okay. So you don't like authoritarianism. I I have, oh man, Jonathan, I have, you have no idea. I have such a huge problem with authority. (laughs) In trouble. Anyway, I mean, there's trade offs, right? There's different. I spent years of my dad trying to push me to go in the military, and I was like, have you met me? (laughs) Yeah, an anti-authority streak for sure. (laughs) All right, but uh, back to the beach volleyball compared to curling. So I thought a couple of things were interesting there. I thought there's a lot of stuff that was interesting. But one, I think they're a little bit ahead of curling when it comes to their tour system, it sounds Mm -hmm. like. Like it sounds even, like it, even though their tour, even though the American based tour has gone bankrupt twice. Well, so's the slam. The slam's gone yeah, bankrupt yeah, once, true. right? And so it, it got saved. I don't think it actually went bankrupt. I think it was about to go bankrupt and then Sportsnet bought it. I think they bought it for nothing, but or whatever. And then before that, like if you go listen to the Inside Curling podcast, right? Like in a couple of the early episodes there, Kevin Martin runs through some of the precursors of the the slam, like a couple of these attempts. And I remember these in the nineties or a couple of attempts to have like big time bond spiels on TV. Mm-hmm. Like Rudy Ramsharan tried this like million dollar bond spiel that didn't work. Uh, and uh, there was like a, an attempt to run, uh, if you know what the West Edmonton mall is, it's a giant shopping mall in Edmonton. Uh, oh, until, yeah. until mall of America came along, it was like the biggest mall in uh, the world. And then that same company owns the the American Dream thing that they tried to build at the Meadowlands in New Jersey, and is currently just a massive eyesore that wound up being they they spent like twenty five years building it, and then opened it uh, three months before COVID hit. Yeah, maybe they could turn that into a curling rink. <laughs> they could turn that into fifty <laughs> curling rings, Jonathan. The thing is enormous. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of retail space post COVID that could be turned to curling rinks. Just saying. Uh, but the, so there's like a lot, but before that, there were a couple of these other attempts in Canada pre-slam to put on like high level professional bond spiels and for profit. And they kind of went, they went bankrupt or didn't work or the companies were sold or folded. Right. So it's, it's not a, it's not a get rich quick scheme or maybe it is a get rich quick scheme. That's why they keep going bankrupt. But, um, it's, it's, you know, fledgling if you will, but I do think there's space in curling for, like some kind of more regional tier two tour, right? We were talking a bit about that with Jerry a few episodes back where maybe the U.S. sets up like an eight-team tour if there's an entrepreneurial person out there who wants to kind of arrange the sponsorship and work that out in terms of how to build up depth in the American game. 
I think Canada has more regional tours going like the Ontario curling tour. Um, Europe also has like a little bit of a, a tour system going, but it's not that deep. So uh, there might be more space for these kinds of regional tours that are kind of maybe privately owned. I think that's the big difference, right? Is that a lot of the ones right now that are at the regional level are just kind of volunteer run and there's, it's not for profit. And um, you you kind of get what you get with that. I think sometimes, right? Like, mm-hmm. like volunteer volunteering is great and it kind of does a lot to support clubs and it's great for the grassroots. But if people are doing something in their spare time, um, you may not get as good a quality product as if it's someone doing it for a job in order to try to make money. Yeah. And is that the question is, is that an advantage? Cause you look talking to Travis, it sounds like at the grassroots level, it sounds like beach volleyball is kind of relying on, on private, uh, rather than, rather than nonprofit organizations, nonprofit, you know, beach volleyball centers, beach volleyball leagues. It sounds like it's, it's really a for-profit model where people are building facilities and putting beach volleyball courts on there or putting beach volleyball courts at their bar. And that's how the club is growing grassroots wise. Whereas, you know, curling, we have these nonprofit curling centers, nonprofit curling leagues um, sprouting up everywhere, and they're really building the grassroots. I mean, it's really which which model do you think is better, and which which model do you think is better for curling? Uh, I'm I'm kind of intrigued. I mean, there's I think there's pros and cons to both. Um, I think that once you're running something for profit you have to make a set of decisions as the owner about what's going to make you the most profit, right? That That's going to drive the process. And that's not always kind of long-term interest of growing the game. That, to be honest, I think a lot of curling clubs that are run nonprofit tend to frown on what we might call rental or corporate activities, right? But actually, if you're running a rink for profit, you could probably fill that rink every day with like just people coming in, trying out curling, running a like a well-run kind of souped up version of a learn to curl that interests people to the games, let them come out and have fun. And there's probably thousands of thousands upon thousands of people who'd be willing to drop, you know, 30, 50 bucks a shot just to try curling once and have no interest in joining a league and being like long-term sustained. Whereas a club is obviously very interested in sustaining its membership long-term and kind of keeping the club activities going, but is often not interested at all in doing activities that might simply generate revenue. And you probably have hundreds of people like me who would be very willing to have their full-time job be selling and running corporate events and learn to curls. Yeah. I mean, there's probably, there's probably space for that, to be honest. I think that there's, I think it's, I think the big issue is the the curling rink itself is really capital intensive to get going. So mm-hmm. like we saw much more the, so than beach volleyball. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you just need sand. <laughs> well, I guess they would say you just need ice, right? But the upkeep for beach volleyball is probably less than like once you get it built, like the the year over year capital cost is probably less than turning on a uh, a chiller. Yeah, I think that's the that's the big issue is the ice plant and installing the ice. That's the that's where it gets really expensive. Mm-hmm. But. Um, Aside from that, I think that they're they're kind of facing similar similar problems. Um, the other one that I thought was interesting is this idea that someone's making a lot of money doing highlight stuff. I don't think he's making a lot of money doing highlight stuff. I think he's getting a lot of social media followers doing oh, highlight maybe. stuff. Yeah, maybe. But it's I just don't like... think he's making money doing it. <laughs> All right. 
maybe not. Um, but I think the idea that I think that's a space for curling too. And I think you kind of flagged it. I, there's ways in which some of the accounts are really great. You know, like I think WCF's good at promoting highlight shots. Uh, curling Canada's kind of great at promoting highlight shots. But there's also ways in which um, they don't they don't necessarily allow that uh, they're a bit more kind of think tight with the copyright sometimes, or make it difficult to view if you're overseas or not in Canada, mm-hmm. for instance, right? Or or content's often geolocked, and yep. you know I've heard it said to me, oh, there's but what about all the money in this, right? And I'm like, well, how many people in England are going to pay to watch slam events versus what could perhaps unlocking slam events internationally do for promoting the game, right? Like people being able to watch it in developing curling countries, that might be a bigger long-term growth strategy that might get a lot more attention. Like you said, the NBA gets it, right? Like I can get up any more. I, I don't have NBA on any of my cable packages here, but I can wake up every morning and there's like a YouTube edited 20 minute, it's not like it's not just highlights. It's basically a condensed twenty-minute version of the game from the night before, and I can watch that through in twenty minutes. And it's licensed by the NBA, and they're not clacking it down because they know this is a great way to promote interest in the sport worldwide. That leads to other revenue streams. And when other people are doing their own highlight packages, the NBA isn't tracking them down and, and shutting down their content. Yeah, there's lots of kind of amateur YouTubers that are just kind of voicing over highlights or, you know, breaking down players or breaking down plays. So there's, there's loads of stuff on YouTube if you want to follow the NBA. Mm-hmm. And not as much for baseball and even football because they're they're extremely strict about their um, about their rights deals. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think I think Curling Ken has been pretty good about dumping games on YouTube maybe oh, yeah. 48, 72 hours after it's played. So there's actually a that's like I think a good thing. Um I think the next level would be people coming along and slicing it up a bit. And I think do you know Daily Curling Puzzle on Facebook? Yeah. Like that's a pretty clever way of promoting the sport, I think. He he's been going through and um identifying interesting strategic situations, posting them, everyone argues about it. Then he posts the link with like the time slice uh, moment on YouTube the next day. So you can kind of see how the end played out. Yeah, it's all, I I haven't, uh, I haven't gone through and uh, followed it that closely, but uh, I've gone through and looked at it and yeah, that's, that's a great way to, to engage people. It's a really smart thing to do. Yeah. So I think stuff like that, I think that those are some tricks I think curling could definitely pick up from beach volleyball. Yep. So at the end of the day, um, what, what can curling take away from, from all of this other than realizing that its problems aren't unique? All right. I'll tell you my big takeaways. And I think, I think the first one's true. I've, I've just been watching last chance you, right. Uh, the, it's a great series on Netflix. And I think that the, the honest brutal truth with sports is it's the 1% of the 1% of the 1% that are going to get paid, right? There's very, very few people who get to make money playing the game they love, right? And that doesn't mean to like discourage anyone from, from doing it or going as far as they can. But the reality of it is, is that I don't know how many teams can, in any sport, can really um, you know, make a living at that sport. Right. So when he's talking about people, you know, being Uber drivers or kind of scrapping along to just try and get their entry fees, I think you're never going to escape that in any sport. Um, so that that's, you know, probably in curling, maybe five to ten teams are going to get paid and everyone else is going to be in that amateur status. 
I think the other thing is that where curling, I think, does need to get a bit more professional is in how it develops the lower tier events that makes it possible for what I call strong amateurs or people who are trying to break into that next level. So we, I think actually what we do need is more of these regional level tour events, regional tours, professionally run, that are perhaps run slightly for profit. And that may get a few people's nose out of joint. But I think if it's something's run for profit and run well then maybe that makes it easier for um, other curls to simply play in the events and have fun and build on a fun component to those events, both for spectators, but also for the people playing in it too. Well, Jonathan, thank you for going along with this crazy idea. Yeah, I think it was a great idea. And I learned a lot <laughs> about beach volleyball and uh, it sounds <laughs> like too. they will be back on the sand a lot sooner than we will be back on the ice but uh well i mean they're already back on the sand so there's yeah. that <laughs> there you go all right uh thanks everybody and uh we'll we'll talk to you again real soon thank you for listening to rocks across the pond a curling podcast you can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at curlingpodcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at rocksacrossthepond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.